knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, Ron Spomer back with podcast number 19, and this is from Sporting Classics Magazine, my rifles column. I started writing for Sporting Classics in 1984, and I think the magazine began in 1980. This was from the 20th anniversary, so that would have been probably the year of 2000, and my rifles column took kind of a personal slant with this one. The editor asked me to write about some trials and tribulations of the hunting writer. <laughs> and I think I gave him more than his than he'd bargained for. Well, let's read it and see. I think I remember getting in trouble for this one. So, uh, 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 this could be bad. Rifles, 20th anniversary. 14 years of hunting has convinced our rifles editor to expect accurate and dependable equipment. If only he could expect the same from his guides. I've often said that writing hunting and shooting articles for a high-quality magazine isn't the best job in the world. But I'm satisfied with second place. My engagement at Sporting Classics has provided me adventures the average English teacher seldom suffers, or I mean enjoys. And I get to field test the firearms, ammunition, clothing, optical instruments, and similar paraphernalia I'd otherwise only lust after. I meet wonderful people, visit exotic landscapes, and touch the magnificent wild beasts of my dreams. As an old brethren preacher friend says, I'm experiencing quite an experience. When editor Chuck Weschler first asked me to compose a few words for Sporting Classics magazine, I was in Idaho hunting birds with a Browning Satori 20 gauge, waterfall with a Winchester model 1300 pump 12 bore, and big game with a Ruger model 77 270 Winchester. 
These days, I'm still in Idaho, hunting its varied game, but with a delightful diversity of firearms in every bore in action. Beretta, Browning, Dakota, Jarrett, Kimber, Magnum Research, Marlin, Mossberg, Remington, Rifles, Inc., Ruger, Sacco, Savage, Thompson Center, Weatherby, Winchester. From 22 long rifle through 416 Rigby, my work requires I try them all. The finest walnut and engraved steel, the most accurate stainless steel, graphite, titanium, and multi-coated lenses all have accompanied me in the woods and prairies on glaciers and rock slides, in rain squalls and blizzards. Since starting this gig at Sporting Classics, I've hunted on three continents, stalking everything from tasty one-pound rodents to the world's largest deer and antelope. And I'm willing to press on with my assignment despite hardship and disappointment. Though gentle readers may scarce believe it, with this job comes toil, peril, and deprivation. Not every hunt nor every firearm matches expectations. There was this grizzly hunt during which the guide dumped his two clients in the woods with a mound of gear at midnight and asked, You know how to put up a wall tent, don't you? He then steered his string of horses back to the trailhead for a load of hay, not returning until the following noon. Other than having to chop ice from the frozen creek to make water, camp construction went smoothly. We indulged in bacon, eggs, and toast from generous food stores. The only real trouble began when the guide returned. He led us up a trail so slick with ice and snow that my partner's horse slipped and fell on him luckily without major injury. That evening, our guide tied our horses in dense woods and couldn't relocate them. We two hunters walked back to camp, built a fire, cooked supper, and retired. Hours later, the guide rode in with his recovered steeds, but the next afternoon he got lost again. We had to ride 30 miles out of the mountains to find a telephone to request a ride back to the airport. This was a blessing because the bears weren't out of hibernation yet and another day with that guide could have gotten him killed. On a British Columbia moose hunt, I was supposed to test the effectiveness of a Nosler 200 grain partition bullet fired from a 30-06 Model 70 featherweight rifle at 2,500 feet per second. The problem on that occasion was the bush pilot flying off with my bag of ammunition still under the seat. By the time he returned, five days later, the moose was dead from an old 150 grain Federal factory bullet scrounged from the cabin. The rifle worked perfectly. During a mule deer hunt in South Dakota, I was supposed to learn all about the long range performance of a 270 Weatherby Magnum in a Fibermark rifle, the only synthetic stocked center file rifle then offered by a major manufacturer. A blizzard trapped me on an isolated ranch where the water pipes froze and I was requisitioned to help haul water from a distant well to the cows. This wouldn't have been so bad if the truck hadn't broken or if its bumper hadn't pulled off when we tried to pull it or the front wheel hadn't fallen off the old John Deere with which we tried to pull it. 
It also might have helped if we could have bathed. It took five days to escape that icy hell. The rifle was the only mechanical device that worked on that trip. It accounted for a muley bucket 400 yards in a 25 mile per hour wind. First shot. Nevertheless, I'd have traded it for one hot shower. Alaskan hunts have given me some of my most enduring and frightful memories. Something about the last frontier inevitably demands adaptability, if not endurance, patience, and a whole lot of luck. There, at the far end of the continent, convention falls prey to convenience or desperation. Planes are patched together with duct tape. Guns are cleaned with sticks and cooking oil. Guides are dragged from bar rooms. As one veteran hunter remarked after nearly coming to blows with his guide over some ill-chosen words, if these guides were in the lower 48, half of them would be in prison. One guide confessed to me, two days walk from the gravel strip where we'd been dropped off, that a Florida warrant for his arrest on drug charges had inspired him to become an Alaskan guide. A pair of rough and ready characters to whom I once entrusted my safety required three days to sober up before we could leave base camp. They would have been ready sooner, but every night they'd get reinfected. One wild man burned his pants so we could have a fire on the tundra. Another played rodeo cowboy with an ATV, standing it on its tail while trying to climb over boulders taller than the vehicle's wheels. Yet another dressed in homemade nylon rain suit and leather boots with no waterproofing, Gore-Tex is for sissies, begged his hunters for extra socks, shirts, jackets, anything dry after three days of rain. A bush pilot who flew us into a remote camp was later arrested by the FAA for flying commercially on a learner's permit, which explained why he never returned to pick us up. The oddest sourdough I ever had the dubious pleasure of enduring liked to cook naked in spike camp. You'd hear the hiss of the little backpacker's stove while you set up the tent. You'd catch a whiff of food cooking, then turn around to see this guy squatting over the kettle. You prayed sausage wasn't on the menu. My most disconcerting hunts were those followed by calls from law enforcement agents. A state trooper phoned me one year after a landowner recognized his property in a photo I'd taken and published with an article. Seems my outfitter didn't have permission to hunt that particular ground. Last I heard, he was pursuing another line of work. Trespass seems to be a recurring problem with many outfitters. Coming off a western mountain one fall, my guide and I were accosted by armed ranchers contesting our travel route. Before that hunt, I'd even asked the outfitter to see maps of the areas in addition to written permission from the landowners. Well, apparently he fudged a few details. Following one hunt designed to test Cabela's excellent line of rugged camp tents, stoves, cots, bags, and muzzle-loading rifles, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent phoned to request a personal interview. Hmm. Could I produce, he wondered, any evidence that I'd ever possessed the appropriate buck license for that hunt? And of course, I couldn't, because I never held one. But I did pull an unused doe tag from my files. What was the problem anyway? It seemed that our outfitter, in an effort to toot his own horn, had inflated certain statistics during an interview with a local reporter, claiming that eight well-known outdoor writers 
had hunted with him and taken trophy bucks. When this hit the local paper, his competition alerted the law because buck tags were difficult to draw in that unit. In truth, several of us had taken nothing but pictures and most of us were not that well known outside our immediate families. Remarkably, through 14 years of these and similar adventures, I've encountered hardly any mechanical malfunctions in all the new and unfamiliar equipment I'm asked to use. Once the scope reticle lens shifted under a heavy recoiling rifle, but I was able to screw the eyepiece back far enough to reestablish enough sharpness to finish the hunt successfully. One European binocular arrived with the right barrel pointed where the left barrel wasn't. But I caught this before leaving the house and the next sample was perfect. A friend in the business was less fortunate on one of his hunts. The expensive scope he was testing went belly up during the sight-in stage of his hunt. Fortunately, no manufacturer's representative was along. My friend pulled a spare 4X loophole from his bag, mounted and sighted it, and got his game. I've tested some inexpensive rifles that grouped poorly or didn't cycle properly, a few that weren't bedded well, some with poorly fitting sling studs, and many with ill-conceived, well, okay, downright ugly, stock designs that contributed more to shelf appeal than function. But the vast majority have proven not only functional, dependable, nicely balanced, and pretty, but remarkably accurate. Manufacturers have learned to listen to their customers, assess the performance demands of their products, and build them through computer-assisted design and machining to tight, consistent tolerances. If the industry sees similar progress in the next decade, this job could get downright enjoyable, except perhaps for some of those guides. Oh, Ooh, I don't know. What? <laughs> I would call it bad guides. <laughs> well, listen, this was kind of a special thing. This is way back in the 90s, as I recall. And the editor wanted me to write about some disasters. You know, let's do something different. Write about some some bad hunts because everyone thinks, oh, you outdoor writers, you get all these perfect hunts and you always get a big one and everything else. He said, didn't, didn't anything bad ever happen? And I, of course, said, well, you know, there were a few incidents. Well, when I put them all together in one article, it makes it sound like all the guides and outfitters are really bad. But this was just a handful of incidents that really stand out because they were bad. Generally, the guides and the outfitters are all really quite wonderful. But stuff happens. <laughs> well, yeah. And didn't you get a lot of trouble because of that article? <laughs> well, a little bit. I, uh, I like never, you couldn't show up in Alaska. <laughs> right. No, well, I could at the expense of my life, but <laughs> supposedly the editor got a call after this was published from a couple of uh, guides and or outfitters in a bar up in Anchorage who had read it and told him if this guy ever shows up here again and we catch him, he's not going home in one piece. <laughs> so why in the world did you revisit this and put it on a podcast? <laughs> well, because it's fun. I mean, it is, it's fun and it's educational because as I was saying earlier, outdoor writers, yeah, we get some fun trips and free trips and every once in a while an outfitter will save a big one for the writer so he can get famous and all this kind of nonsense. To whatever degree it works, I don't know. But a lot of outfitters figured out early on that if they had writers for the big magazines show up and get something, have a good hunt 
that, of course, was going to get them all kinds of advertising. That's why they did it. And some of them would do it every year just to keep things churning all the time. It's, the it's a marketing. On. Yeah, it's it's good marketing. Well, you remember when you wrote about Lance? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Lance Kronberger was just getting started up in Alaska, and he had me uh, up on a sheep hunt, uh, which was wonderful. He's a heck of a guide. He really knows his stuff. And when I wrote that article with a picture of a big ram, actually, there were two of them. My friend Scott Grange from Browning was along. We both got rams bang, bang on the same shoot and everything. It was was just a beautiful, beautiful hunt. Got some good photography and all. And it was so well received that I think it was published in American Hunter. Maybe we'll scrounge it up someday and read it. Oh, we should do that. But Lance said afterward at the SHOT Show when I saw him, he said, I have already booked for two seasons. Yeah. So two years never, ahead. You're ne- yeah, you're never going back. <laughs> well, without a chunk of change. Yeah. Well, but but that's the whole idea. The outfitter wanted to book a bunch of hunts. So if he invested in taking one writer on a hunt and it cost him whatever, and then he booked for the next two years, that's just saved him a lot of marketing costs. Well, I think the other thing is when you had these experiences in the 90s, you couldn't get uh, an outfitter couldn't get by with it now because it'd be all over social media. So I think they're more professional. People research them more because you can. Oh, yeah. That's bad behavior stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing in their defense, let's say you're an outfitter up in Alaska and something happens to one of your best guides, you know, an accident or family. (laughs) The coronavirus or whatever. Yeah. Or your dad got sick and you had to leave or something. How do they, how do they function? So they've got to push somebody in, press somebody into service. And sometimes it's the cook. I've had that happen. It's like, your guy's going to be the cook now. (laughs) And well, okay, you just roll with the punches. But every once in a while, you get some characters like we had here. It's just, like I said, it's just people are people. And and I'm sure they're telling stories about all the, the bad writers that they had. Yeah, up there, I'm sure know, there are yeah. a lot of stories Prima about. Donna's, you know, that Spomer character. He comes up here and he expects us to wait on him hand and foot and deliver the biggest ram or biggest elk in the country. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> so they ought to, the only difference is they don't have the audience. They don't have the magazine to write the stories for. They can just tell everybody in camp. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's not only do you have experiences um, throughout the world that you can compare to, but a lot of times, you know, you've had great hunts, great outfitters that are now our friends. Yeah, and that story is pretty much every story I write. You know, if I do a hunting story, it's going to be because it was a good hunt and the guide was exceptionally good and the outfit was blah, blah, blah. Because so, you're not going to – a lot of times you just – if it's really bad. Well, it's like these bad hunts. I didn't write those up as, a, hey, guys, you need to go on this hunt because it's just so good and the guides are excellent. No, the whole thing fell apart and I just lost a week's worth of work and I didn't – you know, took a bunch of pictures and things and I couldn't do anything with it. So it just sits there. So, yeah, if if you read a story by an outdoor writer, that's generally going to mean that it pretty much happened like it happened. So that's the way it was back in the 90s anyway. And I don't know what it was like in the 60s. I wasn't writing back then. But. Oh, Keith Atchison's dad was. Oh, he is funny, too. If you guys want to read a funny book, go. I don't know exactly what it's called anymore. The Adventures of an Outdoor. 
hunter. He was a wonderful man. And the name though is Atchison, Um, Jack Atchison and Sons booking agency essentially in butte montana been around since 1948 so jack got started by himself way back then booking hunts with outfitters and he will put you together with an outfitter that he thinks matches up pretty well to what you can do and want to do and then his sons took over Uh, jack has since passed but he was just a delightful raconteur and he could tell stories after story and have you in stitches well he put a bunch of them in a book Two books, I think, actually. And it just goes on and on. And the near-death experiences that he had and the comedy. And it is a hoot and a riot. I've read them both twice. And I'm probably due to read them again. If you really want a fun book about not just bad guys and outfitters, but bad hunters and bad experiences altogether, read Jack's book. If you can't find it, just call Jack Asheson and Sons in Butte, Montana, and I'm sure the boys will get one in the mail for you, or or at least tell you where to get one. The other thing I'd like to say about Keith Asheson is they're a wonderful booking agent. You know, they they do continue to match hunters with good guides and any place in the world. Oh, yeah. I've had many, many great hunts thanks to them. They would say, hey, Ron, I think we've got an outfit here that really work well for you. And they match me up pretty well with them. Like I like to hunt hard and I like to walk. Some guys can't walk that well and they like to hunt in out of a blind. That's the kind of matching up they do. You know, they'll interview you and ask you what you like to do and how well you shoot, how far you shoot, what you're interested in and find the outfitter that best fits your needs and vice versa. So it works out pretty well. If you're looking for uh, booking a special hunt somewhere, just give it a try. It doesn't cost cost you anything you know the outfitter pays for this service they just line you up with a good one so give them a call or look them up online jack atchison and sons butte montana yeah it might work out pretty well for you and then you won't have to put up with these uh guides i was just talking about what do you think end of the show i think this is the end of the show (laughs) i really wanted to go back to alaska someday but maybe not (laughs) well hey ever since that disaster all the hunts in alaska and, and bc and alberta have all been great i mean just wonderful outfitters and some guides that i'm just great friends with i respect what they do and how well they do it and i've just had great hunts ever since those are really the only disaster hunts that i can remember so that's just a handful you know, out of what 50 years of hunting a handful of disasters like that i'd say that's pretty good odds so that's another podcast for you ron spomer outdoors inviting you to join us on youtube facebook instagram uh we've got a patreon community now so if you get the patreon app you can become a supporting member of ron spomer outdoors and your support will help us do what we do and we invite our patreon members to Join us uh, making suggestions on what they'd like to see covered in both our videos and our writing blogs. So uh, check out Patreon. Maybe you'd want to join up and be a part of the Ron Spomer Outdoors community. We would definitely love to have you. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy your winter season. And if you're going hunting, do hunt honest and shoot straight.
you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.